0: Historically, Christmas has been a difficult season for me. My experience of Christmas as a child differed from the images of what culture was telling me it should be. I grew up in a home with significant challenges. My parents had an unstable relationship and there was a lot of conflict in our home. Both of them had very significant mental health struggles. Finances were tight or insufficient and we often relied on food banks and the generosity of family. Situations that were already difficult became explosive under the pressure of what was supposed to be the happiest time of the year. When I was 14, I was adopted by my aunt and uncle, who I now feel and call my parents. My home setting was significantly more peaceful and my experience of Christmas looked closer to the cultural norm. But after the presents were opened, the family gatherings were done, the decorations were put away, It didn't feel as fulfilling as I thought it would. However, that emptiness could not hold a candle to the exhausting pain of my grief the Christmas after my brother died. Michael passed away at 16 after being diagnosed with a rare brain cancer. Michael was my biological brother who I spent majority of my life with. Being younger than me by seven years and the struggles of our biological household a lot of my time was spent taking care of him, which was a welcome distraction from the conflict in our home. He held the memories of being with our biological parents as well as moving and adjusting to our life with our adopted parents. It's hard to describe without understating how important his companionship was to me. The loss of the presence of his presence in my life left a deep hole that couldn't be filled, nor did I want it to be. I felt disoriented. Every outlook on life now felt clouded and my framework needed to be reworked with the presence of this new, deep, heavy grief. Michael passed in October 2019. Christmas being the next eventful marker in the calendar, this season took on the brunt of my cynicism, lament, and pain. Although naturally I am someone who enjoys gathering with family, decorating, and gift-giving, that comes with the season, that year I dreaded it. I rolled my eyes at the shallow songs that incessantly played in every public space. I stared at the decorated Christmas tree in our living room, picturing how good it would feel to drag it out back, douse it in gasoline and watch it be engulfed in flames. I excused myself at every family gathering that Michael once was, to weep. I was angered with what felt like a trivial, cultural celebration of consumerism, perfectionism, and greed. Graciously, God led me to some practices that helped me wrestle through the grief. I'm going to go over them plainly, but Timothy Keller does a much better job of encouraging those who endure suffering in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. The first practice I developed was lament. It looked like simply verbalizing what I was thinking to someone else, a quiet conversation with myself or with God. Often music resonates with me in a unique way, so I'd listen to songs that gave voice to those thoughts. I also identified with C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed, which is a journal-like exposition of him processing the tragic loss of his wife. Secondly, I had to press into and sometimes push myself to partake in thanksgiving or praise to God. I saw thanksgiving as the necessary reminder that grief is hard because life is good. Sometimes in a worship song at church it felt like something I was spitting out through clenched teeth, and other times it was a natural outflow of my heart. I also dedicated time to reading the Bible. Much of God's word further informed my thanksgiving and lament. Making space and time to read the Bible was crucial and something I actually thirsted for. The wisdom literature of Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs, as well as Paul's letters, specifically passages about the resurrection of Jesus, or suffering, was what I gravitated to. Another crucial part of my journey with grief was prayer. I saw it as making space for hope and bringing my requests before God. I tend to be more clear in written form, so I would keep a prayer journal. It was such a gift to myself to have those recorded and to be able to revisit the prayers and actually witness God answering some of my prayers. Another helpful resource for my prayer life is the liturgical prayers found in the book, Every Moment Holy, specifically volume two with death, dying, and grief. It has beautiful written prayers to recite when you just don't have the words or you need some guidance. Finally, I shared my grief in community with those that it felt right to. Although no one can truly grasp the intimacy of your grief, there's something to be said about giving space for trusted people to speak into your life. It wasn't a large crowd. It looked like three people in my life, my husband, my closest friend, and my counselor, all whom shared a Christian framework. In this way and more, God tenderly cared to my wounds, gently reminding me of his wounds. He left his heavenly throne, He was separated from the most intimate relationship possible. He was humiliated. He was abandoned. Although I knew these things in my head, while processing grief, the knowledge had actually saturated my heart. It wasn't reciting the right answer. It was God's tenderness that I actually got to experience. The much greater wounds that he bore weren't trophies to hold above my head to quiet my grief they were signs of compassion, that he too knows what it is to be human. God is the true companion to our grief. The intimacy we grieve from a loss of one another is found only and in full in Emmanuel, God with us. When the meaningless of a holly jolly Christmas slaps you across the face with a Christmas card, an ugly piece of tinsel, and an annoyingly delicious festive sugar cookie. Cling to what is good. Cling to Jesus. God coming to dwell with us in this mess. God coming to dwell with you in every intimacy of your grief. Jesus choosing to honor the weak. Mary, a young woman with heavy labels of cultural shame upon her shoulder. God residing in a womb humbled by birth and every struggle it is to be human for the purpose of bringing us into glory with him that is a reason like no other to persevere in hope to love graciously to dwell in holistic peace and to spur on joy
1: Michelle, it's always fun watching yourself on video. There, there's the sermon, right? Wow. There's a song I listen to often that includes a line. This life is not long, but it's hard. This life is not long, but it's hard. Life's challenging and difficult. Life is full of sickness. Some of you have been caring for a loved one for many years. Maybe you've been sick for many years. Some of you have been living with chronic pain. Some of us have a cancer diagnosis. Some of us struggle with mental illness. And others in our family are burdened with dementia. We have loved ones making self-destructive choices. We've experienced infertility or loneliness. Our life and relationships include estrangement and conflict. This life is not long, but it's hard. This year, some of us have lost loved ones to death. And we felt like life is not long enough. This life is not long, but it's hard. Read a newspaper and there's just bad news upon bad news. As a pastor, I often hear the stories of life's difficulty and life's brevity. And the, that difficulty and that sorrow often feels especially difficult at Christmas. Because we've kind of got a couple of things going on at this time of year, right? We've got this cultural, as Michelle alluded to, this cultural celebration of, of Christmas as the happiest season of all, you know, where there's this uh, expectation that our uh, celebrations be filled with love, peace, and groovy vibes, and decorations, and gatherings with a perfect mantle, and a perfect table and a serene family gathering where everyone gets along and the crazy uncle isn't that crazy this year, right? We have this expectation. But Christmas is often hard because that perfect cultural picture is not our reality, though we wonder, is it ever anyone's reality? And the collision between this cultural um, picture of what Christmas ought to be and our experience in the real world can create dissonance for us. This creates unease within us, like, oh man, I don't measure up. I'm, I'm, that's not my experience. And so what do I do with that? We can deny it and withdraw. We can try to paper over it with sentimentality or we can enter into it. A couple of years ago, I was put on to uh, an artist. That's he's, he's well known. He's Johnny Cash. I don't know any Johnny Cash fans out there. I actually was put on to him. Uh, I hadn't ever really listened to him, um, but officiated a, a, sat, a funeral. It was a really sad funeral, and they requested a Johnny Cash song. And I kind of started listening to him a lot. And uh, Johnny Cash died a few years ago, and one of the tributes written at when, he, when he died was that he was determined, this is a quote, to recognize life's darker side. Johnny Cash was determined, in his music, to recognize life's darker side in stark contrast to the bland, inoffensive, and trite songs played on radio stations today. Now, I'd say that is probably especially true of Christian radio. Bland, inoffensive, and trite. But life has a darker side. We're in the season of Advent, as Jeff's already alerted us. The word Advent means to wait, to prepare. Again, it's not a preparation for Christmas, right? The, the Advent candles aren't a counting down to Christmas. You know, at the first candle, you better have your shopping done. The second candle, buy the turkey, right? That's not what the Advent candles are for. That's not what Advent is for. It's not this countdown to Christmas. Advent is not preparing for Christmas. Christmas, friends, has happened. Christmas has already happened. Jesus, little baby Jesus, born, already, done. That's already happened. It's in preparation for the second coming of Jesus. What we are waiting for, what we are preparing for, is for Jesus to return, to come again. At Advent, more than at any other time of year, we pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And the reality is, is, in times of sorrow, in times of grief, Those prayers only intensify, ought to only intensify. Come, Lord Jesus, deliver us. Deliver us again. That's what so many of the Christmas carols that we sing actually are. They're not singing about Bethlehem and Christmas. They're singing about the second coming of Jesus. Joy to the world, it's about the second coming of Jesus. Come thou long expected Jesus, about the second coming of Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel, it's about the dayspring to come again, the dawn of heaven to shine on us again. Uh, my text for this morning is a prophecy. It's uh, If you want to follow along, it's in Luke chapter 1. It's given by a man named Zechariah, and it is a Christmas passage, sort of, uh, and in Luke chapter 1, so Zechariah was a priest uh, so, uh, of the house of, of Levi, and he uh, was... Chosen to be uh, to serve in the temple. There were many priests, but you kind of had to wait for your turn for the lot to come up to actually serve in the temple. uh, Zechariah served was serving in the temple when an angel Gabriel comes and says, "Your wife, who's been uh, with whom you have experienced infertility for so many years, is going to become pregnant." And and Zechariah's like, "Way too old for that. That ship has sailed." And, uh, and the angel Gabriel is like, no, 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 this is happening. And actually as a sign that this is going to happen, you're not going to speak until he's born. And so you, you may know the story that Elizabeth did, in fact, give birth to a son. His name was John. He became known as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And, uh, and as, a, as Zechariah names him John at his birth... His, his mouth is open, and he, he gives this pro- prophetic word. And so I'm going to read three verses at the end of his prophetic word that he gives, as he, uh, what, that he speaks over his son John. Um, and that begins at verse 76 of Luke chapter 1. I'll, I have it on the screen here too. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. for you will go before the Lord. You are going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet, into the way of peace. This is God's word. A couple of thoughts among this theme, will our sorrows have no end? The first is that we live in the land of darkness and the shadow of death. That's where we live. We live in darkness and the shadow of death. Isaiah is, or Isaiah, Zechariah is prophesying that John is going to prepare the way of the Lord. Who's the Lord? Jesus is the Lord, and Jesus is going to come to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins, and because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death. And friends, that describes us living in the land of darkness in the shadow of death. It's a shorthand in biblical speak for our fallen condition. It's a shorthand, it's a way of describing living in a world that's been tainted by sin. Living in a world that's been marred by the curse. Living in a world that's not yet been fully healed and restored and redeemed. We now live still in the shadow of darkness, in the shadow of death. It's important, I think, to recognize that so that we not be surprised by griefs and sorrows. I have this distinct memory as a child growing up, and, you know, sometimes you'd hear stories of, of terrible things happening to people or, you know, people getting sick or, and, and, and passing away, and I remember having distinctly remember feeling that those were things that happened to other people. That those were those were things that happened to other families. I lived a a charmed life, obviously, Um, but time has a way of robbing us of that mentality, doesn't it? That sorrow and grief eventually comes for us all. And so, I'm not trying to be a downer here. It's quite possible that many of us are, are in a really beautiful season of life where there's just so much, so much reason to, to feast and celebrate and, and, and party. And, and there is a time for all of that too. And, and we, we laugh with those who laugh. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. But there is a sort of Christian myth out there that, you know, as long as I'm really, really good, God kind of owes me a, a long life, a happy life, a a char- that charmed life that that if things don't quite work out the way i want then i i kind of have a right to be a little ticked at god but that's a that's a myth you know sorrows eventually are coming not necessarily because you've done something wrong but because no one in the land of darkness and death is immune from sorrow you know there's The psalms, I've learned much about the psalms in the last couple of years, mostly from an author named Eugene Peterson. There's many different kinds of psalms. Like there's 150 psalms in the Bible. It's kind of the song book, the prayer book of the Scripture. And uh, the scholars will will try to categorize the psalms, and there's different kinds of psalms or songs of of praise, and there's songs of of prayers of petition, where you're asking God for things. Do you know the most numerous... The largest category of psalm is the psalms of lament, psalms of lamentation, of crying out after God, which, which is interesting, right? You wouldn't think that give, listening to Christian radio. I don't mean to slam positive, encouraging Christian radio, but it's, there's none of that. The psalms of lament are the most numerous, which instructs us how to deal with her grief. And again, kind of taking this idea from uh, Eugene Peterson, I think T. Keller picks up on that in the book Michelle mentioned as well, that the, the Psalms are so instructive for us as to what to do with our emotions. You know, religious folk often try to tell you to stuff your emotions, to deny them, like just vent them, like be, get that, you know, work out your stiff upper, upper lip, like be strong, Don't you dare admit sadness or weakness, or don't you dare admit any negative emotion? Stuff it, keep it all together. You got this. That's what religious folk tend to tend to suggest. Whereas, kind of on the far other end of the pendulum is like just give full credence to any and every emotion and feeling that you ever feel. That's your truth. Just follow your heart. Just that's if you're feeling that, then that's go that way. As Peterson would say, and I think Keller too would say that there's this other way of that Psalms teach us of bringing our emotions to the presence of God, and praying them in the presence of God, processing them with God and to God, and speaking out what's on your heart to Him. Not denying them, but not just giving full credence to them either, but processing them in God's very presence. You know, it is safe to do that. He can, he's a, he, he can handle that. He can handle it. You know, there's, there's some, if, when you read the Psalms, I've, I've often been really, really confused by this. Maybe you have been too. Where you read Psalms of lament... Or there's another kind of psalm called imprecatory psalms. Those are those are even those are a little nasty. Where it's like, God, would you mind killing that person? Because I don't really like them right now. Like, where the psalmist is like, uh, smite them, kill them. Like, you know what I'm talking about, right? If you've re- if you've read the psalms, there's these psalms where you're like, what is he? Do? This guy is having a bad day. He is angry. He's like, would you would you? Commit genocide against that whole people group, and like, it's it's quite terrible. And you're like, and there's other psalms, the psalms of lament, sometimes where they're praying things. And you're like, that's not a good thing to pray. You shouldn't pray that. There's a there's a psalm where where uh, David, I think it's David, says, "Turn your face away from me, God. Like, God, would you just leave me alone? Like." It, should you pray that to God? Turn, like, abandon me, please, God. Like, turn away from me. Turn your face away from me. If God were to do, like, that's the definition of hell. What? What is going on there? Have you ever been confused by that, by, by some of that, where you're like, this is, but it's in the Bible. So does that mean I'm supposed to pray like that? I think, and the, the insight, and, and I'm pretty sure it's Peterson again that, that helped me understand this, is that actually what's going on there is God's given you permission to just pray what you're feeling to him. Like he's, he can handle it. And he actually has the wisdom to know what to answer and what, to, what not to answer. And so when you pray something that's totally inappropriate and would be terrible for you, while you're being genuine and while you're pouring out your heart to God, he actually can, can filter those and respond in grace. But he understands how we speak and how we feel in times of desperation, in times of sorrow. And I think that's freeing. I found that so freeing where you can actually not feel like, hmm, Am I allowed to pray this to God or not? Like, do I have to? Like, and you're trying to be your own filter, but like, you you're free to bring what you're feeling and how you're feeling and the, the reality of your emotions and the reality of your anger and your grief and your sorrow, and to actually pour that out in God's presence, and to not like to not with to not you know segregate Him over here and say, well, I'm going to have to deal with this on my own. So I think, that's, I think that's helpful. I think that's instructive in the Psalms, that there's actually things that the psalmist is praying that aren't good and true, but they're, what they are is they're examples for us that it's, it's, it's permission. You can bring anything you're feeling to God. So Zechariah says that John is going to prepare the way for Messiah, and the Messiah is going to, which is Jesus, is going to be the dawn or the day spring, the light shining on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death. So first of all, encouragement for those who are in grief and sorrow is that we do live in a land of darkness and in the shadow of death. Do not be surprised... When sorrows come, and come and pour out your heart to your Father in heaven. The second thing I want to see in this uh, text, in this prophecy of Zechariah, is that the dawn from on high has come. We are not left from, we are not left without hope. The dawn, or the some translations would say the day spring. So sometimes we'll sing about the day spring, come thou day spring. Da da, da, da da, whatever it is. <laughs> um, that's, that's talking about this passage here. It's the dawn, the source of light. That light has shone on those living in the land of darkness and in the land of death. How? Two ways in this passage. To give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus has come. Jesus has come to give us the light of the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of our sins. We have all sinned. We live under the curse of sin, and he has come to forgive and to heal and to give us the knowledge that we can be saved from our sin, to deliver us from the fear of death, Hebrews says, to destroy the works of the devil, John writes in 1 John 3, I think, to save us, to save us in the past tense, that he has delivered us and saved us from the penalty of sin. In the present tense, he is now even saving us from the power of sin in our lives. And one day, praise his name, he will deliver us and save us from the very presence of sin. He is saving us so that we would know him. He's come to save us. He's come to understand us. As one song, a more recent song, Gloria, Uh, Jess Ray, God has come to understand us. He has come to enter into our griefs and sorrows. Jesus is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. I am feeling so much grief and sorrow right now, I feel like I could die. He prayed to God. He came to give us knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. He did that by his death on the cross. And so think of the cross of Jesus. Think of his sacrifice for our sins. And when we do that, it rids us of self-pity. It rids us of self-pity as we think of his wounds by which we are healed, his wounds which are for us. So he came to give give the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. And he came to guide our feet into the way of peace. He came to guide our feet into the way of peace, the way of shalom, flourishing, wholeness, well-being, how we were meant to be. It's the Sunday of hope, Advent Sunday of hope. You see, Christian hope is not, I hope something's going to happen. It may not, maybe, maybe not, but I really, really hope I get the Xbox this year. Christian hope is not that we have a really long life or that we have a great family or that we have good health or that there's an easy and comfortable year ahead. That's not our hope. Our hope is in the new creation Our hope is that we are guided into the way of peace, into the place of shalom. Our hope is that God will make all things new, that he will restore all of creation to the way he intended when he made it. Our hope is unshakable. Our hope is that God is going to set all things right, that every sadness will come untrue, that every tear will be wiped away, that a sorrow and grief may last for the night, but joy will come in the morning. That he's going to turn our mourning into dancing. And that he will give us the oil of gladness that will never end. That he's going to put all things right. That every injustice will be subverted and made right. That righteousness will prevail. We have the promise in Isaiah 65 that says then... Be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. Isn't that a miracle? That Jerusalem will be a joy? The people are going to be a delight. Like, look around the room. Look around the room. You see some people who you don't consider to be a delight right now. But miracle of miracles. One day, the day is coming where they will be a delight. That's amazing. Even me. I can... Like, even your sister and your brother, right? Like, they're going to be a delight. That's a miracle. And I will rejoice. God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. That is our hope, that that day is drawing near. And so we may experience tragedy, unspeakable tragedy. And while it may dash our desires, our hope remains unshaken and unthreatened. Because no matter what happens, no matter the sorrow and the grief, that day is drawing near. Messiah is on his way. And that, friends, is the Advent tension that we live in. The contrast between what is and what is to come. That tension between what, what is now, the reality of our lives now, and what is promised, that now and the not yet. But we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. Christ has come, and Christ will come again. And he is coming even now. He's on his way. Colossians 3 says our our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. And Paul writes in Romans 8 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, he writes, our light and momentary affliction... Think of that for a second. This is Paul writing. He's been beaten a bunch of times, been in prison. He's ultimately going to give his life, have his life taken from him. He's had experienced all kinds of loss and conflict and difficulties and sorrows throughout his life. Our light and momentary affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of glory. You see, the kind of joy we need in this world, the kind of joy you and I need to navigate the sorrows and griefs of our life is the kind of joy we get through tears. Life-changing, hope-filled, unspeakable joy comes through the way of tears and the ways of grief and finding our hope as an anchor for our soul that, yes, the light is coming The dawn of the new day, of the new Jerusalem, of the new creation is drawing near. And that, friends, is a hope that is unshakable. That is a hope that is unthreatened by anything. It is secured for us by Jesus dying for us and rising again. And as surely as he rose again, and he's ascended and he's at the Father's right hand now, even so he is going to come again. And he's going to usher in his kingdom in its fullness. And everything will be made right. Everything fallen is going to be lifted up. Everything broken will be put back together. Everything wounded will be healed. Every injustice will be made right. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. Yeah. And so the Apostle Paul says, when you gather, as often as you gather, I want you to remember my death until I come again. I want you to, as a foretaste of a wedding feast that's to come, I want you to live with hope, knowing that all of your sins paid for on the cross and knowing that I am going to return again and where, where the, the wedding feast, the wine will flow and the feasting will have no end and the celebration will be rich. That day is coming, and it is drawing near. And so we're going to celebrate communion together as the people of God. We may be celebrating through tears. Even maybe we're thinking of loved ones who have departed and who right now are in the very presence of Jesus, and we get this little foretaste right now to remember that Jesus died so that we may know salvation through the forgiveness of our sins and we can know that Jesus is returning again and that that new creation is coming. And so our hope is unshaken even through our sorrows. I'm going to invite our servers to come forward. Uh, We believe communion is a, a meal of remembrance that Jesus has instituted for those who would be his followers. And so, for, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have uh, submitted your life to be, Him, being the Lord of your life, and you're trusting in Him to forgive all of your sins, if if and you've demonstrated that through baptism and through walking with Him, we would invite you to come forward to receive communion. It's a it's a sign of the body of Christ broken for us and a sign of the blood of Christ poured out. For us, the way we pr- we'll do that here is you're going to come forward. You'll receive the elements, return to your seat. We'll participate all together. There are is a gluten free option of bread uh, in, as well. We're going to come down either this aisle or this aisle over here, and you'll either turn left or right depending on which section you're seated in. There will be a couple uh, in front of each section, and then you'll return either up the middle or down the along the walls back to your seats. Um, And so let us give thanks to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God of all comfort, that you comfort those who mourn, and that you are ever-present help in times of trouble. And Father, thank you that we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, that Christ has come and Christ will come again, and that Jesus, you demonstrated your love for us and your care for us by dying on the cross for our sin, to forgive us of all of our sin, And that one day, you are going to come to institute the wedding feast of all wedding feasts, where the joy will be palpable and unceasing. And until you do that, we commit to walking with you, to being your ambassadors in this world, testifying to the kingdom of heaven that is coming even right now, that is among us, and is is coming in its fullness at Jesus' return. And so strengthen our faith as we participate in communion together this morning. For we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.